Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, visual effects specialists, uh, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, composers, and so many more. I know I left something out. Um, but this is the place you want to be. And yes, I had somebody ask me earlier this week, do you like independent films? Anybody that reads behind the lens, anybody that goes to the website, anybody that, that listens to this show, you know I love independent films. I love the great big blockbusters too. But filmmakers got to start somewhere. And generally, they start with little independent films. And I'm very excited because our live guest today is writer-director Ryan Lason. Now, our regular listeners will remember Ryan was here back on September 27, 2021. Just days after the world premiere on September 16th of his film, All the World is Sleeping. Uh, so he was just starting on the festival circuit in September of 2021. He had just had a world premiere. That's the only screening he'd had of the film so far. Now, the film has distribution. It is opening in theaters and on digital this Friday on St. Patrick's Day, March uh, 17th. And Ryan is back with us today so we can find out what his journey has been like for the past 18 months or so. Uh, I'm very excited to have Ryan back. I was a big fan of this film when I first saw it. I rewatched it again. I still am. Um, a lot of people out there right now, you get a chance to see Melissa Barrera in... Uh, Scream 6. Well, she is in. She is the lead actor, actress in All the World is Sleeping. And this was shot, I think, right before, and I'll double check when we get Ryan, right before um, In the Heights. She's in In the Heights. But it was definitely before she first appeared in the Scream reboot. And now... So now you can go see her in Scream 6, and you can see her in a film that predates her entrance into the Scream franchise. Um, so I can't wait to talk to Ryan and find out more about his journey dis to distribution uh, since September of 2021. But Oscars last night. Not too many surprises. I think the biggest surprise to everybody was there was no kind of hubbub or upheaval. No international incidents that anybody needed to worry about. The Academy was prepared with their crisis team, however, uh, just in case. But everybody was on their best behavior. And while there weren't many surprises, I think it's safe to say that this, that this, the winners, the speeches that we heard were from people that were humbled and you felt, and you felt that humility uh, in their words, what they were saying, in their emotions, genuine, heartfelt, and sincere. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis 
just thinking about I'm getting like tears are welling in my eyes just thinking about Jamie Lee Curtis winning for best supporting actress for everything everywhere all at once um as she it was she really wasn't grasping this I've got an Oscar until she mentioned her parents and looking upward as if to the heaven and yelling out I want an Oscar um that was priceless and then no sooner do we have do we have Jamie Lee then we get another one of the favorites uh, of the entire year is the wonderful wonderful Kei Hui Kwan who also won best supporting actor for his role in everything everywhere all at once and I think the moment of the of the entire awards though is when the film won best picture Harrison Ford who co-starred with Kay in his very first film, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Um, Harrison Ford announced the best picture. And it was one of the happiest reunions. When he when Harrison had walked to the stage earlier, Kay was on his feet, giving Harrison a standing ovation <laughs> just for coming to the stage. Um, but he when that film when it was announced. He ran up there, the biggest hugs in the world, and smiles with Harrison and Kay. And, of course, Spielberg is sitting in the audience, as was as Kate Capshaw, who was also in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That was, I think, the most beautiful. Kay and Harrison was the moment, the image of the night. Um, but then let's not forget Brendan Fraser, Picks up a win, Best Actor for The Whale. Another first-time nominee and winner. And the irony is, he and Kay, 31 years ago, um, starred in this little film called Encino Man. And here they are all these years later, and both of them win an Oscar on the same night. Um, and a, a bit of trivia for you. Kay's one of his besties, and his attorney is Jeff Cohen, who was his co-star in The Goonies. Just amazing, amazing um, crop of people. All, so many first-time nominees. Such diversity. We saw Michelle Yeoh win as Best Actress. Uh, we got to see James Hong show up uh, with his googly eyes on his tie. Just so many wonders at last night's awards. Um, the big winner was Everything Everywhere All at Once, seven Oscars. Um, Ruthie Carter won again for her costuming for Wakanda. Uh, Wakanda, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And as a reminder to people, you seem to forget, you know, Ruth Carter did the costuming for Taylor Sheridan for season one of Yellowstone. She is the one that set the tone with the custom-made chaps and jeans and hats uh, and got, and because Kevin Costner liked one kind of jean, uh, she actually, and the company didn't make them anymore, went to the company and they started making them again just for Kevin, for Yellowstone. Um, and I, I think Ruth is brilliant, brilliant. But it was going to be a toss-up. For, for my money, it was going to be a toss-up. Catherine Martin 
uh, for Elvis or Ruth for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and Ruth took it. Uh, very exciting. For, uh, all quiet on the Western Front. Absolutely outstanding. Um, love that it picked up Best International Feature. It also picked up, what, what else on my notes here? Um, it also picked up Best Score, Volker Bertelman. I adore Volker. I have interviewed him in the past. He is so creative. He is so inventive. He goes outside traditional instrumentation. Uh, when crafting a score, the score of All Quiet on the Western Front is haunting. It is beautiful. It is frightening. Um, it is exquisite. And I am beyond thrilled. Volker's win, I think, was a big surprise to a lot of people. But so well deserved. It makes me so happy. Um, best animated short film. And you can actually find this out there free to watch people. The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. I love, 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 love this little short. I have watched it, I can't tell you how many times. Um, a beautiful little film that picked that up. Um, and best animated film, although I still say it is the best film of the year, even though it didn't get a Best Picture nomination. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Uh, and all those guys, those magicians at Shadow Machine that he worked with. Just absolutely stunning. No, no surprise, Top Gun Maverick picked up sound. Uh, everybody was pretty much expecting that. But yeah, the big winner. Uh, and of course, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, there again. That was, that was a tough one. That was a tight one. Um, a surprise, though, is that The Whale won Best Makeup and Hairstyling. I really thought it was gonna, that would at least go to Elvis. It did not. Best Original Song, no surprise, Not To, Not To. Uh, best Cinematography and Production Design both went to All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, I mean, this is so astounding because the, the original film, All Quiet on the Rest Western Front, based on the 1929 novel of the same name, won Best Film that year. Well, now here we are 93 years later, and All Quiet on the Western Front didn't win Best Picture, but it won Best International Film. So it's wonderful to see something, a story like this, come back around again. And if you haven't read the book, please, I encourage you, the book is wonderful. And then do yourself a favor and do a back-to-back, -back, uh, you know, a doubleheader screening. Do the 1930, All Quiet in the Western Front, and... The new one from Edward Berger and Germany. Um, just, you'll see the differences, but if you've read the book, you'll also find out that the, the new film, our new Oscar-winning film, sticks more closely to with the brutality um, that you read in the book. The 1930 film kind of toned down... Uh, quite a bit of what you get, what you sense in the book. Uh, but no, this one, Berger and his team, no, they went for it. And I'm so happy that Netflix let them go for it. So, you know, Netflix, thank you for that. Um, it's an incredible film. But so, and of course, 
One of the fav- my favorite bits of the night, Cocaine Bear made an appearance. Well, Cocaine Bear, as he would have been if we did not have visual effects. Cocaine Bear, somebody in a bear suit. Sadly, I was fully expecting a reveal, and maybe it was Jimmy Kimmel's arch nemesis, Matt Damon, to come out of the bear suit. But we never did find out who was in the bear suit. But presenting best visual effects with Elizabeth Banks was Cocaine Bear. So that was a lovely comedic moment of the night. Uh, And, of course, Lady Gaga just bared her soul up on that stage singing her Oscar-nominated song for Top Gun Maverick. Um, Stripped down, makeup stripped away, torn jeans, T-shirt. That was her soul we saw perform up there. Um, But getting back to visual effects, Avatar, the big visual effects winner. Yay, Joe Letary and his team at Weta. Uh, over the past couple months since I spoke with Joe and interviewed Joe uh, about Weta's work on Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, Joe is one of the uh, the visual effects supervisors on the film. Parts of my interview have been out in print pieces in various uh, outlets around the country, smaller outlets, but nobody has heard the interview. Um, Now that the Oscar has been won. Now that all of my little rights issue, serial rights that I give to people when they buy a particular piece, now that those time frames they expired with the Oscars yesterday, I can now let you hear the entire, my entire interview with Joe Letary talking about everything that went into making Avatar The Way of Water from a visual effects standpoint to give you a better understanding of why exactly they won last night for visual effects. Now, you're not going to get to hear the whole interview on the show because I think it's it's 40 minutes long. And that's edited, folks. It's 40 minutes long. So you're going to hear probably 15 minutes or so of it. And then... Uh, and then Ryan's going to come on. We're going to talk about his film. But then by tomorrow, I will have the full interview with imagery up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, so you'll be able to hear the whole thing then, unless Pam and I feel motivated at the end of the show and decide to extend the show and let you hear the rest of Joe's, my interview with Joe. But without any further ado, my interview with Joe Letary, visual effects supervisor for Avatar the Way of Water, the Oscar-winning film. Take a listen. Once again, Weta just wows. Well, thank you. I mean, this is... And the fact that your name is in the opening titles. Yeah, that's always nice. It is, yeah. Well, closing titles, but yeah, it's it's in the... Yeah, Yeah, it's not in the crawl. It's... Yeah, yeah, I think I had that on the first one, too. But it's rare. When you guys get that kind of recognition. Yeah, it, it is. But, I mean, obviously Jim and John realized that that was a big part of this film was the... You, know, you don't have uh, Avatar without Weta. Yeah, we like to think so. You know, I mean, it's where we're pretty well working together, you know, with, uh, with Lightstorm. Like, after we finished the first film, I don't know, about six months later when we got back from everything, Jim said, let's sit down and talk about what we can do better next time. 
So we knew there was going to be a next time. Always <laughs> we just good. Exactly. We just didn't know when. Oh. But uh, what we talked about is really we needed closer collaboration between the two teams. And that's what we did. Like, we, we've been writing software for this ever since we finished the last film. So we really haven't stopped. Yeah. Yeah. What? How how much has technology? Well, I know how mm-hmm. much technology has changed mm-hmm. in these intervening years. Yeah. But how did the change in technology help you and your team really up the ante? I mean, I have to tell you, mm-hmm. my uh, my attorney went with me to the screening. Uh huh. He swore mm-hmm. it was shot totally underwater mm-hmm. in a you know a South Pacific yeah. blue sea. Yeah. I said. Uh-uh. Water tanks and VFX. He goes, exactly. No. He <laughs> yeah. was just amazed and mesmerized. And I yep. said, that's Joe and his team at Weta. Yeah. And the, the technology, it's not that the technology evolved. It's like we wrote it because we had yeah. to, right? You know what I mean? That's like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And we, we just, like I said, started writing technology um, for, you know. Again, it was us and Lightstorm. Like, all the right. capture side of it, you know, that was Lightstorm and, and the team there. Um, for the virtual stage, it was a combination of the two. And then for the finished effects, it was, you know, software that we wrote. But it was, it kind of had to flow through all the way. Just like water. Just like water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see a theme here. <laughs> you know, one of the great things, because when we talked before, we talked about War for Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. the last time you and I talked. I've talked to, I don't know how many of you guys, though, in between mm-hmm. on, on MCU stuff. Yeah. Um, but one of the great things that we talked about then was the expressiveness of the eyes. Mm-hmm. You take that to a whole new level here with you know, the way of water. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious because I didn't think you could get any better mm-hmm. with emotion in eyes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as you did in apes. Mm-hmm. You have surpassed that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. How do you even improve upon perfection? We kind of hit a limit with the tools that we had with... Um, you know, that we used, like, basically starting with Gollum and carried through to Apes and then Alita. Um, it, it was a good system, but really difficult to hit that that kind of expressiveness uh, and hard to go beyond. So we we basically just rethought about, okay, when, when an actor makes an expression, when any of us makes an expression, what's really going on? What's muscles driving all of this? And we knew that, but you had no way to actually know what the muscles were doing. We always just guessed and gave them numbers and tried to combine them in a way that that worked. It was a lot of give and take to do that. This time, we actually used a little bit of uh, deep learning. We wrote a neural network to actually understand what the what the muscles were doing, and that gave us like a a, a way to like not just look at a piece by piece kind of thing, but to look at the expressiveness of the whole face. So. It's subtle things, but like, you know, when you move your lips, your the skin around your eyes is still moving. We used to have to kind of look at that and try to dial a little bit of it in without breaking anything else. Uh, like I said, it always took a lot of time. Now with this new system, we start to get these, these sort of sympathetic behaviors uh, just coming out. So you can work on the primary expression, and a lot of the secondary motion comes along with it. And that adds a subtlety that was always really hard to achieve before. And I think that's what you're seeing mostly around the eyes. It's yeah. amazing, particularly with Kiri. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It really stands out and is noticeable with mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And it's because of her eyes are so much bigger, almost like very akin to like the big eyes paintings. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also... It's because she's a 14-year-old girl, right? Yes. She doesn't really speak that much. A lot of it is just in the face, and then, we all know that expression. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. It's like when everybody's worried about Carrie, and yeah. it's like, no, she's 14. Yeah, exactly. As I'm watching the film, no, she's just 14. Exactly, yeah. And there were a couple a couple chuckles Yeah. Uh, in the screening, because I was screening it at the same time as the premiere, but uh-huh. not at the premiere. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, there were some parental chuckles. Of course, yeah. (laughs) That happened. But that, Mm -hmm. in particular, that Mm -hmm. really showcased Mm -hmm. the escalation in the technology Mm -hmm. that you've written. Just outstanding. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, that adds... Mm -hmm. Because the story itself, it's not a groundbreaking story. It's, I, it's a story we're all familiar with mm-hmm. in any setting. This mm-hmm. just happens to be on Pandora. Well, that's that's every film that we do, if you yeah. think about it. Like, that's what we hope visual effects brings to it. You know, like, you, you go back to Planet of the Apes. Caesar was a coming-of-age story, yeah. right? But what makes it unique so that you can see things in a way you hadn't seen it before is we're, we're telling it through the eyes of, of an ape. Mm-hmm. Rather, rather than a human. And here we're looking at a Pandoran family, you know, that has to go off and, and basically, you know, emigrate to another part of the world and try to adapt and try to settle in. And, and so, yeah, you, you try to take those things and, you know, give them a, a grounding in something that we understand, but then make them a little bit bigger and a little bit more expressive mm-hmm. so, so that there's something uh, that as an audience you're drawn to. Well, and of course, you have this great differentiation uh, between Curie's family, the F- Sully's family that we know, mm-hmm. and now we have another family. Mm-hmm. And the differential in the design of the faces, mm-hmm. the nose, mm-hmm. and the eyes. Yeah. And I got to tell you, looking at that, I never would have known it was Kate Winslet and Cliff Curtis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Never would have known it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just flabbergasted me. Mm-hmm. But to br- to create that distinction and still have as much emotion coming from that family mm-hmm. as from the Sully family mm-hmm. was just amazing. Amazing. And, and it was great for us because we got to broaden our tools a little bit. Yeah, again, in service of the story. Right. Yeah, it's that new facial structure. It's also the skin color slightly different. Uh, and, you know, they, they make a point over and over again about how they're built for swimming, the other kids are not. It's, you know, kind of a fish-out-of-water story, but, again, it's more like learning to, to adapt, okay? We're in a new place, and we're not, <laughs> we're not built for this. How do we do it? You know? It's very much like a U.S gentrification or refugee situation in the world could be you know and anything you know like that yeah just having to find your your place and making it fit like i love the scene where the 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 kids are tormenting kiri because she's just sort of lost in thought about all the waves and the light and the sand mm-hmm. you know and the brothers step in and just Way just along. go at it <laughs> yeah it's like yeah, that sounds about right yeah, yeah. every yeah. sister should have brothers like that yeah exactly yeah but yeah. now you bring up 
another exquisite part of this film, the waves, mm. the water. I know that Jim was using a virtual camera mm-hmm. while he was filming. Yes, yeah. But then you have to take what he's theoretically seeing. Yeah. And you have to really bring it to life mm-hmm. and make it a picture. Yep, yep. This is relatively new, this process. Yeah, because we, what we did is um, we wrote the software to generate the water, and we did essentially a low-res and a high-res version of it. So the low-res version would play in real time. Mm-hmm. So Jim could call out the kind of water he was looking for. I want a you know, two-meter swell here, or I want you know, something more calm and mirror-like here. And then the, the crew at Lightstorm had a lot of these things that they could dial in, and then that's what Jim did his virtual camera on. Mm-hmm. And then we t- took those and, and you know, used those as the starting point. It's not, a, it's not as simple as just saying, okay, now we go low res to high res because it's water. You're running right. the simulation. But it still made sure we were all grounded in the same world, that we weren't cheating, you know, the physics. Um, where that got complicated, obviously, was doing that on top of what had been shot in the performance capture tank. Because mm-hmm. you've got a tank full of water with these big paddles going on that don't really behave like ocean waves, but the performances are reacting to them. Right. So we had to do a little bit of extra work to blend that all together. But that was in the cards from the beginning, mm-hmm. that we needed some way for Jim to visualize this. Mm. Yeah. Well, and nobody knows water better than Jim Cameron. Absolutely. He knows water better than anyone on the mm-hmm. planet, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. He's seen more of it than anyone on the planet. He really has, because we would do a lot of, okay, the physics are telling us, you know, this is what we should get, and Jim is telling telling us, well, you're wrong, you know. I've seen it, and this is what it should be. It's yeah, like, I mean, okay. he's been <laughs> at the bottom of Mariana's yeah. stretch. <laughs> yeah. Nobody no. else has. No. <laughs> but Jim Cameron has. Yep. But... It, it just amazes me. And I know Weather made great strides with water and ocean in Eternals. Mm-hmm. Huge. Those ocean scenes, mm-hmm. spectacular with the current. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing much of that here as well, especially when we get out near the Three Brothers, the Rocks Formation, yeah. Yeah. and really seeing the current mm-hmm. take hold. But even in the shallow end by the village. Mm-hmm. You can see it within the texture of the turquoise to, yes. to the blue. Yes. And I love the color gradation mm-hmm. in there because it also mirrors the two peoples. Yes, exactly. Exactly, you know? yeah. So it all comes together within the water itself. But I love how we can see the current above mm-hmm. and below. Mm-hmm. Yep, and also we played with things like, you know, sandbanks under the water to help give you different variations in color. Just just things that we observed out in the real world. But yeah, you're 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 right to pick up on that because we actually did use that a little bit. Like if you're looking behind cliff, you might see a little bit more like shallow, you know, greener water. Mm-hmm. If you're looking the other direction from where they came from, the water's deeper and, mm-hmm. and bluer and it kind of plays with them, but it also kind of plays with where they're coming from and where they're going. You mm-hmm. know? No, just in the sandbars, you've got. There's a great scene there where Kiri is just face down, mm-hmm. just under the surface, mm-hmm. and we see the sandbars. Yeah, and how yeah. the little dots of like, like a crab underneath mm-hmm. is breathing, and yeah, because I was like, when I'd be down the Jersey Shore with my grandparents. Yeah. For me, at the ocean, that was the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, and yeah. You start digging for a crab when you saw the air bubble come up. Yeah, yeah. And just 
the incorporation of real life. Mm-hmm. You know, it really looked like we were in a coral reef. Well, I mean, everything we do is based on something that exists yeah. in this world. You know, so we just try to put it together in ways that are unique and try to draw a little bit of magic out of it. But like you said, it's there. If you go, if you go to the Jersey Shore, it's still there. It's still you know? there. Yeah. Now, did you get any field trips out of this one? Nope. <laughs> oh, come on, Joe. Come nope. on. Jim, Jim took the team out and you know d- did some you know diving tests. Uh, but yeah, no, we <laughs> we're visual effects. <laughs> we, we don't do that. We get we stay and figure it out. Yeah. Darn. Yeah. Oh, no, well, <laughs> this wasn't really a global field trip. Like yeah. Eternals was a global uh, field trip. Yeah. This was not. I'm really curious about the photoreal characters mm-hmm. and their movement in the water. Mm-hmm. Because I know that crew and cast, when they were in the tanks, mm-hmm. no scuba gear, mm-hmm. they're all basically doing a modified free dive in there. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, how does that impact... The visual effects mm-hmm. when you then have to incorporate emotion and the whole body and the movement of tails. Yeah, yeah. Because that has to be a real challenge in and of itself because you're, you're battling with water first mm-hmm. and the scenery around it. Mm-hmm. But you've got a great starting point. You know, having the actors perform in, in the water, you get all the benefits of capturing that motion, right? It's what we've learned a long time ago when you're doing performance capture for like a body. You get the weight right when something right. is running or jumping. And it's the same thing when a character is floating or swimming. That would take a really long time to try to animate. And to try to do a whole movie's worth of animation that way would be really hard. Like by the time you put enough reference cameras in the water to really understand what the actors are doing, you might as well build a capture system because mm-hmm. you're 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 that close to doing it anyway. So that's why we did it. It just made more sense to just capture it directly. And then you start to develop a vocabulary, like when they're swimming, okay, in the tank you're a human, you can't really propel yourself as fast as you know, the Metcayena can with her big tails. So we just take, you know, the strokes that they're doing, add the, the tail movement, add that little bit of propulsion, and then just blend it in so it still makes sense, you know, with, with how they're swimming. But they're swimming in a way that they can do, which is much beyond what humans can do. Mm-hmm. And then for the face, we couldn't really capture underwater. They had a, a head rig uh, most of the time with, like, a GoPro on it. But because they're working so much in the water, they had to wear goggles, they had to wear nose oh. clips, you know, so you're not really getting the expression. So what Jim would do, I mean, you get, you get a clue, but you don't get the detail. So what Jim would do is have them pop up and put on a, one of our stereo head rigs and perform the scene, you know, again, so that we got, the, you know, the sense of their performance. But, of course, that never matches up one-to-one. It was right. like, okay, now we've got this body motion, we've got this head motion, which one is the lead here for this part of the story? You know, is it the face leading the body or is the body leading the face? So I always had to work that out to figure out which was most important in uh, how, to, how to kind of combine the two performances. And that's where the animators pretty much had a field day trying to do that stuff. And that is Joe Letary, VFX supervisor from Weta. Um for Avatar, The Way of Water, Oscar-winning VFX Avatar.
the way of water. Uh, and as I said earlier, there's still another 30 minutes <laughs> of Joe's interview to go. And if Pam and I don't bounce back to it at the after today's show, at the end of today's show, and extend the show out very long, uh, it will be out on BehindTheLensOnline.net no later than tomorrow. So we're going to switch gears right now because our guest is already on the line. Welcome, welcome, welcome back, Ryan Layson. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you back. How are you? It has been a journey, but now I'm excited that All the World's Sleep is coming out in movie theaters on Friday. I know, and I'm so tickled I get to talk to you now since I, I talked to you just a few days after the world premiere at the New York yeah. Latino Film Fest back in 2021. Yeah. This has been a real journey. It has. And after that premiere, too. So even getting that premiere originally was a journey just because it was, you know, we're in the pandemic. Yeah. No film festivals are open. So we're like, OK, how do we try to actually get this into, you know, uh, a festival where people are going to be at? So we did that. And now we're going to get it in a theater where people can go see it. So now let's pick up from you got into the New York Latino Film Festival, had the great world premiere. And I know that you were hoping for more festivals at that point. What did you continue on the festival circuit? Did you get more festivals after the New York Latino Fest? We did. And it was definitely the point where like the world was starting to open up to like festivals. So like it was at least hybrid, but we kind of stayed away from any like online ones because we wanted to be able to have people to see it in a community. So we, uh, we played, I think six or seven festivals we've won uh i think three best films a grand jury we won a best editing award so it was, it was a really good festival run very nice so now when did you get picked up for distribution it was the end of last year so basically we finished our last wow. uh, festival run in uh march so we we played the las cruces international film festival because that's where we we uh shot the film at mm-hmm. so it was kind of a nice homecoming to kind of go yeah. back to the place where it all started and to uh close the festival run there and then after that it was you know going out for distribution was it's always a challenge for an independent film to begin with but for this the big goal of us was to be able to get the film in theaters yep that's what and you wanted every deal we were getting was like Yes, we'll put you on streaming. It'll just be on streaming. That's it. And just wanted more. And then finally, we, we talked to Gravitas, who believed in the film. And they're like, we want to do everything we can so therefore people can see this movie. We will guarantee you uh, a theatrical run. And from there, we jumped. And who was it who told you in September of 2021 you should consider Gravitas as a possible distributor? I know. <laughs> and now look at this now. And now look at us now. circle. <laughs> I am so happy for you, Ryan. Um, you have no idea. These are the, these are the stories. These are the the journeys that make me that just thrill me. When I get to be there at the start of a journey with a filmmaker, and then you know, net on the fest circuit, just a world premiere, and now you've got a distribution deal. I love to be able to go on that journey. And go for and hear your excitement over a festival, but trepidation as to what's going to happen, 
and now just exuberance um, because you're going to be in theaters on Friday on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, and I think, too, the last time I talked to you, it's uh, the unknown is scary. You yep. have no idea what's going to happen to a film after you make it. So to now to be at this point knowing, okay, great, it's on Fandango. People can go buy tickets to it. You can go with some movie theater and watch it. Talk about a relief. <laughs> <laughs> but, and also, the timing of this couldn't be better because also in theaters right now, is Scream 6. And who is the lead in Scream 6? And the lead in All the World is Sleeping? Melissa Barrera. Talk about the hardest working actress in Hollywood right now. She's got the biggest movie in the world in theaters right now. All the World Sleeping is coming out next week. And then her film Carmen comes out in April. Yep. I just started getting, I just got my first press blast on Carmen. So I'm definitely going to be covering that one uh, and taking a look at it as soon as they make uh, either set up screenings or send us, you know, make press of av- uh, links available to press. But I mean, the timing for you couldn't be more perfect. And I have to say for all the listeners out there, you know, Melissa, you know, you might have first met seen her in In the Heights, then in Scream with the reboot. Now Scream 6. If you really want to see a range of her performance, see her in All the World is Sleeping and then go see her in Scream 6. And you can see her growth as an actress and the diversity and the range that she has. And because I just I just saw Scream 6 on Wednesday or Tuesday or Wednesday uh, before release. And then I rewatched All the World is Sleeping again. Uh, this weekend. So there is a definite difference, but you can see your guidance of her in All the World is Sleeping and what she brings to that character and then to see her now with a much higher exposure rate thanks to Scream. Um, it's just fantastic. Fantastic. And it's that has to help buoy your film as well. I am certain of it. It will help buoy the box office for All the World is Sleeping. Oh, absolutely. And what's been great about that, too, is, yeah, now Melissa has this huge fan base of people that just want to follow her everywhere she goes and just see everything she does. So it's, now we have people that normally maybe might have not have seen, like, an independent film about drug addiction that are now going to come watch it because of her. And to your point, too, about her range, it's just incredible. Every part she does, is so different from yes. the movie before. It's so dynamic. And I think that's also, too, because she comes into every role with such like a level of commitment, warmth, and honesty. She gives everything she has, blood, sweat, and tears, to everything that she does. Well, and especially, you can see, most particularly with All the World is Sleeping, um, as opposed to Scream 6, because Scream, Scream and Scream 6 are really ensemble pieces. This one is, while there are other characters uh, that are very important because of the themes in this film and the, the basis of this film, which we'll get into uh, in a minute for people that aren't familiar with the film, um, she really, she is the one at the forefront in All the World is Sleeping. So you really get to see her acting chops, what she does 
individually without the interaction with an ensemble of six, six or seven other people. And it's really amazing to watch what she gives you in this film, Ryan. Uh, truly amazing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Melissa's in 95% of the scenes of All the World Between. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think we, I think we've got, uh, my God, yeah, what do we have? When her daughter is taken away from her, I think there's a, there's a, a moment or a scene in there where Melissa's not on screen. Um, in the flashback sequences, uh, as a little girl, yeah. she's not in those. But that's it. That's it. That's it. The rest is the roller coaster ride of Melissa as trauma in the movie. Yes. And now to fill everybody in, because you briefly mentioned drug addiction, I mentioned, you know, losing a child, you know, her child gets taken away. Fill everybody in uh, on the premise of All the World is Sleeping. Yeah, the uh, the film is about survival in a world that doesn't go easy on you. It follows a young mother in New Mexico who's, you know, fighting against addiction while trying to be there for her daughter. It's, uh, it's a story that asks us, I guess, to listen and to understand because, you know, characters like Chama, they are our sisters, our mothers, our friends, our neighbors. They are us. And we have to remember that we don't always know what's going on in someone else's life. And this movie kind of aims to like open up that curtain of the lives of others to show you like this is what happens in the world of addiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through that journey, you know, it's also a journey of recovery, but it's also the whole idea of not re repeating the mistakes of the past. One of the big driving forces here with the character of Chama she does not want to be her mother. Uh, and your flashbacks do a beautiful job of showing us what her mother was like, what their relationship was like uh, when Chama was a child. And it's almost like the harder she fights against herself and says, I don't want to be my mother, the more she becomes exactly what she hated. And it's yeah. it's really interesting to watch how you structure that here because the film is it's very nonlinear. It's because and you can do that when you're dealing with a main character like Chama, who when she's strung out, she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know where she's going. Um, you have flashbacks, you have memories, you you have recalls. So you've got a lot of liberty there to play. And you and your editor, Eric Sio, you did a great job with the nonlinear aspects of this film. Yeah, we wanted, uh, especially with Eric and with like the, the creation of the script and the, and the true life stories of the seven women it's based on, we wanted to be able to kind of create like a series of like photographs that you're able to like through the story jump through and to kind of tell like one narrative story, but in a very cerebral, nonlinear way. And to almost kind of go on, on your point about like her mother and stuff like that, there was like this mantra in the film where uh, she says like, that won't be me. Yeah. She thinks about that in regards to like her mom and the generational addiction. She sees a lady on the street who she thinks is homeless and she's like, that won't be me. Mm -hmm. And the film kind of shows that like we all walk through different shoes but we're all just a couple steps away 
from having, you know, that person's life. So therefore it was the audience. If the audience is watching the film for the first time, they might be looking at Chama and me like everything that she does, like, Oh, I would never do that. That won't be me. I, you know, her decisions would never be a decision I make. And this film shows you like, once you know, like the history and experiences from other people, you might not be too far away from that. And we all could be in that situation. Mm -hmm. And it's funny you use the expression walking in someone else's shoes because you've got a real, you've got two really poignant scenes, important scenes there where she is first being told, you know, who do you think you are? You're not even wearing shoes. She's running around strung out, barefoot, dirty, uh, and then a big turnaround in the third act. And Chama says, look, I'm wearing shoes. So, it, you know, that is so powerful when you look at that book ending. Uh, because that meant everything. Because there's a scene on the bus where she makes fun of a man, on the, an obvious homeless man who's riding the bus. And she goes, look, you don't need, why don't you get some shoes? Put some shoes on. And it's this whole idea of walking in somebody else's shoes. Uh, and you really follow through with that very subtly and very nicely, Ryan. Thank you. I, I love the sister relationship that you're talking about, too, because it's, you know, two sisters that come from the same mother and the same experiences, but their their lives kind of go completely different directions. And how they both kind of perceive the other person is also like, you know, each one of them thinks that they're going on their own path but they don't realize like how connected they are and mm -hmm. how much they both need each other. Mm-hmm. Now I know we talked about this before. Um, the women that this is actually whose stories you have brought to life here. How did you get involved with them and get them to open up to you so that you could tell this story? Which, and kudos to you, and I know I said it to you before, I have to say it again, you keep us in the female perspective, in the female POV. And that sometimes that's very difficult for a male director to do. It gets yeah, judgmental sometimes, and you don't do that. This, you stay in the female point of view throughout the film. And that works so well so that we really can connect, even though some of these other women that are in this film, in the, the halfway house, uh, undergoing treatment and, you know, trying to get off drugs or and any other dependency they have. I think that that speaks volumes, not only about the film, but as you as a, you as a filmmaker. So I'm curious about bringing in all these women whose stories you have you're have put together in an amalgamation here as Chama. Um, tell everybody about that, Ryan. Yeah, and I think the film is definitely a testament to the seven women, the seven uh, survivors of addiction, and how it kind of came to be, which is it's in a very interesting way of how a movie happens when you take true life stories of struggle, a nonprofit, and a film crew and put them all together. Uh, a couple years ago. I got a call from uh, producer Ian Simon and the nonprofit Bull Futures. And Bull Futures is a, a they're a New Mexico nonprofit that that does culture shift work by and for women of color. Mm -hmm. And uh, they invited me to basically come out to New Mexico, 
to listen to the seven mothers who fight and continue to fight against their addiction. And for months, you know, I was able to just kind of be there as they opened up their life experiences, their, their families. Um, and then they trusted me to go back and write a script off their shared experiences. And almost everything that you see in the film is even all the surreal moments were taken from the context of the real incidents that happened to them. So in creating like all the world sleeping became this kind of a delicate balance of making a film that would be both unique and surreal while remaining faithful to the real life experiences that served as its inspiration. So I was showing, you know, chapters of their life, you know, some beautiful, some harsh, some heartbreaking and, you know, some hopeful. Mm-hmm. Did the did these women who were opening up because this isn't just a story about addiction, but it also it's women who are addicted and pregnant or young mothers, mothers with young children. So it kind of wraps in the idea of addiction and pregnancy all together, which I found really interesting. But you toe that line really well, uh, because so often, as we see pregnancy often is an offshoot of addiction because you're so screwed up you don't realize what you're doing uh and pregnancy results so you really walk that line beautifully ryan um but i'm curious for the women the seven women did any of them have any trepidation about telling their stories to you and how you would incorporate them into this film I don't know about trepidation, but they definitely just want to make sure that everything felt authentic and that their voices were being heard. I think what definitely helped was um, once I created the script, I, I came straight back to them and I was like, this is a script. Read it. Let me know if this is doing uh, justice to your voice. Let me know if there's anything in this that you want to like add, to bring out, to shift around, to be more authentic. And working together with them and both futures. I think made the script and the eventual movie what they wanted it to be. And also uh, a lot of them were on set too, to like help like guide myself and help like shape Melissa's performance. So therefore everything that we captured on the day was also, you know, reflective of their experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say the casting that you did besides Melissa, you know, Jackie Cruz as Toaster and Kristen Gutowski as Nell. Uh, who we meet in the halfway house. Really great performances. Really indelible performances. Not a huge amount of screen time in comparison to Melissa, but very powerful performances that speak volumes about those women. Yeah, I think especially uh, Jackie and Kristen, they both come in and they leave a huge mark on the film. And Jackie is, I mean, she's so funny on and off the set, but she brings this, like, level of unpredictability to her role as Toaster. And Kristen, who, you know, I've worked with several times before, and I'm always amazed at how she's able to completely transform and lose herself in the roles. Mm -hmm. Many people who even saw her in this movie that saw her in my first movie, The Dust Storm, didn't even realize she was in this movie just because she basically <laughs> lets herself be go 100% into the character of Nell. Well, I mean, and I have to laugh. I, you know, the one scene, 
And, you know, Nell walks up to uh, Melissa after she's been slamming a phone down. She can't, she's desperate to see her daughter. She can't see her daughter. And Nell walks up and says, you want, you want Coke, a Coke? And she goes, uh, no, you know, I, I don't want any Coke. She goes, no, 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 a Coke, soda. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, a Sprite. And <laughs> I mean, you bring in some levity into inherent levity. It's not forced. It's just conversational levity that comes uh, in the natural exchange of dialogue with somebody. And I like that because nothing feels forced. And you very easily could have taken, pushed the envelope on this, and you didn't do it. Where you did push the envelope, and I love it, I loved it then, I love it now, is Michael Garcia's cinematography and some of those shots. Ryan, they're as beautiful now as when I first saw them. Uh, that's where you bring in the surreal is through much of what Michael shoots and the contrast and the harshness of broad daylight when you're out in the glaring sun and the blinders are off and you have to look at the world and it's kind of harsh looking. The, the sunlight is very harsh and then you're inside and it's more subdued. But some of those night shoots are just beautiful and then I, I, I have to mention it yet again, the salt flats... That is so gorgeous. So gorgeous. You didn't amaze. Talk about an amazing location. Ah, I still can't believe you took everybody out there and you did that. Um, because that had to be brutal. Shooting out there on the salt flats had to be br brutal. Especially when you're making people climb the mountains of salty silt. It was definitely difficult for the actors, but also imagine Michael running up and down those hills with a huge camera on his shoulder. Yeah, yeah, it had a workout <laughs> cut out for him in that film. But he's he's absolutely incredible, and he's going to have such a huge career. He just, like, what he brought to this film is undeniable. He challenged me to make me better each day. It would just bring new, creative, and interesting ideas to every single scene. We, we had tons and tons of talks before we even started filming about how we wanted the look and the feel of this film to be. And he would just come with like, you know, these interesting paintings and be like, okay, her mood for me in the scene feels reflective of kind of like the light and this and this type of tone. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's great. I didn't even think about it in that way. And we would kind of shape the film like that together. So he was so instrumental to this film and, and what it became. Yeah, I, I love his work. And then to see what Eric does editing Michael's work together is just beautiful. But, yeah, what led you to want to go to Salt Flats to shoot? That wouldn't be the first place so what, I would think of. <laughs> so White Sands, which is it's about 30 minutes outside of Las Cruces where we filmed. And uh, growing up in New Mexico, it's, it's one of these, like, amazing places that I feel like a lot of the world doesn't even know about and to have that in your backyard felt like something very New Mexico that we could kind of put in there and also very kind of like metaphorical and cathartic for the character trauma in that moment too where she has to basically climb these hills in order to fight in order to survive and now we have these 
huge sand hills that she literally has to run up. I mean, it's just so it it's so beautiful. Now, because of an area like that, did you have to get permitting and and whatnot to shoot there, or could you just drive out there and shoot? No, we have to get full permits. It's it's a government missile base, mm-hmm. so they do a lot of like testing around that area, but it's still open to the public too. But in order to film there, you have to get you know permits and permission, and then even when you come onto White Sands. You have to go through like uh, you know an hour kind of like lecture about what you can and can't do there, and then since it is also like a government thing, they they check every single vehicle to make sure you're not bringing in anything that could hurt the agriculture, the sand, you know, anything in white sand. Oh my gosh! And see, this is the kind of thing that uh, I think a lot of independent filmmakers don't think about when they're picking a place to go shoot. Um, very uh, permitting is required in i'd say probably what 95 percent of locations you want to go shoot um but when you get in, yeah. into areas like this then it becomes trickier very tricky uh, because as you said it's government <laughs> and we all know how that works exactly it's always the the most beautiful and best locations you want to film at are always the hardest to be able to uh, pull off. Oh, my God. Well, you know, one of my favorite parts of the film, and I know we talked about it before, and I still think it's hilarious, is the fact that you had 3540 little elementary school, first and second grade age, maybe kindergarten age kids, and you're feeding them candy and cake for a birthday party. Yeah. That was uh, that was definitely challenging too for uh, the art department that has to reset those scenes when they're like, okay, these are only prop cookies, these are only prop cakes, these are only for the scene. And then second I call action, hands are going straight into the cake and cookies, everything's getting devoured. I'm like, well, I guess we have to find a new cake to reset for this scene because that's gone. Yes, but your bigger problem is the sugar rush that comes. Yeah. When you're shooting that scene for uh, many, many takes and the, the kids are starting to go crazier and crazier, it becomes uh, quite a challenge for uh, us, especially for the first AD, Nick, who's just trying to keep, you know, order and balance and keep us on track for the day. And these kids are just, I mean, they think they're at our birthday party. You know, it's obviously, you know, we're on a film set, but for them, we're, we're telling them to like, play and have fun. So that's what they're doing. And they don't know when you call it cut that you have to go back and just kind of reset. Oh, my God. I still think it's hilarious that you were brave enough to do it. (laughs) You could have just done 10 kids, Ryan. You went full bore. I think that was the goal with this movie, just to go full on for every scene. Well, now let me ask you then, because you've also shot Don't Talk to Strangers. After you did, you shot After All the World is Sleeping. Yeah, so that was kind of an interesting experiment. So um, when I was in the edit for uh, All the World Sleeping, which is obviously it's a very heavy drama, uh, this opportunity came up in Ireland to be like, hey, do you want to come out to Ireland, shoot like a little kind of like before sunrise, before sunset type of thriller? Uh, So I jumped at the opportunity just to be able to kind of do like a different genre Mm -hmm. and to kind of be able to get like a little bit of separation before I come back and do the festival run for this. So went out to Ireland for like a month, was able to shoot like a little kind of like romantic thriller, was in one of the greatest countries, you know, in the world and just 
immersed myself in that life for a bit and then came back and finished two movies. Now, where is Don't Talk to Strangers? Has that been on the Fest circuit? Has that gotten distribution? What's happening with that? So, yeah. Yeah, that went on the full festival circuit, uh, won a bunch of awards. Uh, it's coming out for a digital release. And I think it's got a foreign theatrical release, too. Do you know who's got your but digital who's got happens. your digital release? Do you know? Uh, Glass House. Glass House distribution. All right. So I need to go bother them. Yeah. Yes, I need to bother them so I can see it and talk to you about that film. <laughs> we gotta keep these conversations going. I'll tell you. So are you working on anything else right now? Yeah, what's been wonderful too about the All the World Sleeping kind of like uh, year of it kind of going out and making its rounds is uh -huh. I've met so many wonderful people that are, you know, happy and, and, and ready to collaborate. So just finish the next script. Uh, that's that's going out into the world. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything goes in the right direction. We get financing before the end of the summer. And uh, my goal is to be in production on the next movie by the end of this year. Ooh. Well, I mean, it's it's just mandatory. You have to. We have to keep these conversations between you and I going. You yes, know? please. If we can do this every year, that would be fantastic. <laughs> I know. I know. But ne for right now, everybody can see All the World is Sleeping this Friday before they go hitting the bars to celebrate for St. Patrick's Day. Um, you know, go see All the World is Sleeping. It may it may give you some pause to drink a little less when you go to the bar afterwards to celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day, um, but this is it's just it is wonderful. You know, it's as wonderful as it was the first time I saw it, Ryan. And I am I definitely am going to hit up Glasshouse people to to get hold of Don't Talk to Strangers, um, and you have to get back to work. You have to get financing for your next film. I want to see yeah. your growth as a filmmaker because you have such a great eye and such a great vision for storytelling. And you know how to use the tools in the toolbox with editing and cinematography and performance and put it all together. And I can't wait to see what else you bring us. I really can't. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It's always wonderful talking to you. A joy, Ryan, a joy. So until next time, enjoy opening weekend. And people should know it's also, on, it's also on digital. It'll come out on digital as well. But the big thing is go to the theater. See this on the big screen. Uh, you won't regret it. Won't regret it. Uh, Ryan, thank you so, so much. And hopefully we'll talk again sooner rather than later. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thanks, Ryan. Bye-bye. Right, talk soon. Bye. And that was Ryan Layson, writer-director, All the World is Sleeping, um, out on Friday in theaters and digital as well. But you can get to the theater, go to the theater and see it. You won't be sorry. All right. Well, that is all the time we have today. You're going to have to listen to, the re to all of Joe Letary's interview with me on BehindTheLensOnline.net uh, later tonight or at the latest tomorrow. But, again, congratulations to all of the Oscar winners uh, from yesterday. Big winner again, 
everything everywhere all at once. Um, you know, see what there's a good hot dogs, hot dogs, hot dog fingers. You know, there's something to be said about hot dogs infiltrating something. Uh, definitely may have brought a little good luck to that film. But, and now, you know, Ryan's film, All the World is Sleeping, it will na- it will now, because it's getting a theatrical release, uh, can now be submitted for consideration for Academy Awards 2024. So we'll see what happens throughout the year and what other films are coming up. One film that you should go see that just opened this weekend, Champions, Woody Harrelson, Cheech Marin. It is... I love this film. It is fabulous. My interview with the cinematographer, C. Kim Miles, is coming up. Um, also, Creed 3 is out. It's a split decision for me on Creed 3. I got to tell you. However, the cinematography, for my money, the cinematography is exquisite. It is fabulous. And actually going out today is my interview with Kramer Morgenthau, the cinematographer. Um, Kramer does a beautiful, beautiful job. And stay tuned because we've also got coming Hiroshi Katagiri. He just directed, wrote and directed a film, End of Loyalty. But you know him best for all of his creature creations, some of which are in Avatar, The Way of Water. He started his career in makeup and, and visual effects, um, physical effects, special effects, with Stan Winston. And has gone through to become a noted creature creator uh, and puppeteer, the X-Files, Avatar, Way of Water, Antlers, The Mandalorian, Hellboy, Captain Marvel. Uh, He even did some work on the Obi-Wan Disney Plus series. So, But now Hiroshi steps behind the camera with End of Loyalty that stars none other than Simon Phillips who we've had on the show before and who I adore, Vernon Wells, my beloved Vernon Wells, Michael Pere. Um, these three veterans are incredible in End of Loyalty. That is available now as well. There's a lot of stuff happening. And then we're going to talk about it more in a few weeks. Spinning Gold. Spinning Gold. It is the story of Casablanca Records founder Neil Bogart. And boy, oh boy, wait do you see it. It is a winner. So there's a lot coming up. I got a lot of interviews already in the can for you. And we've got a lot more guests booked into April. And of course, mark your calendars. April, TCM Film Festival. TCM Film Festival starts with the red carpet. On Thursday, April the 13th, Monday, April 10th, will be my pre-TCM Film Festival show. And I just did an interview with Dave Carger. And we talk a little bit about TCM Film Festival. And you're going to hear those excerpts on April 10th. So, a lot of stuff happening on Behind the Lens. So tune in, log on every Monday, 11 a.m. right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. Then check out the post shows when they go into podcast on BehindTheLensOnline.net and all the little podcast platforms out there, all the little usual suspects. 
we pop up everywhere. And then tons of interviews and some more reviews popping up on Behind the, Behind the Lens online. So that is all the time we have today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.